I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn. It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian schoolteacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. This is a CBC Podcast. So there is a new movie out called The Zone of Interest, and it's getting a lot of attention. It's a Holocaust movie unlike any I've seen before. It's challenging in ways I didn't anticipate. And today on the podcast, you'll hear about that and why it's one of the most talked about movies this award season. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Okay, before we even get into the zone of interest, I think you need to hear a bit of it first. Now, the scene that you're about to hear is in German, and I'll let you know what it's about after you listen. So, if you understand German, you'll know that what you just heard was, like, not very interesting. It's just two people walking through a garden, and they're just pointing out different plants. But it's those eerie sounds in the background that matter, right? You hear a train. You hear noises in the background. This movie is set in 1943, and one of those women that you heard in that clip is the wife of a high-ranking Nazi officer. She's walking her mom through her home garden, a garden that has a big wall on one end of it. And on the other side of that wall is Auschwitz. The Zone of Interest is directed by the Jewish filmmaker Jonathan Glazer. And it's certainly not like any Holocaust movie I've ever seen. In this movie, the atrocities are never seen. You never see them on the screen. But you do hear them. It tells the true story of an SS SS officer, Rudolf Haas, who raised his family in a lavish house literally right next door to the concentration camp where over a million people were killed in World War II, most of them Jewish. It's one of those uncomfortable and chilling movies that I – one of the most uncomfortable and chilling movies that I've ever seen – Two film critics are here to walk us through it. Rad Simon Pillay is here. Katarina Dekalovich is here. Rad, Katarina, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having us. I'm I'm thrilled Hi, that you guys are so here. Thanks for having me. I, I have a lot to talk about in terms of in terms of this movie. So Rad, maybe I'll start with you. I just set up the premise of Zone of Interest off the top, but maybe you can give our listeners a sense of what it's like to actually experience this film. How does Jonathan Glazer draw you into the world of the Haas family? I mean, the movie is largely just focused on housekeeping. Right? Like we're mm. literally watching these people just attend to their daily duties, uh, whether that be sweeping, whether that be tending to the garden, as you mentioned, whether that be, you know, Haas at his office overlooking designs for this new structure they want to build. And mm. this structure being this space where they have different chambers that could move cargo through efficiently. One of those can achieve really high heat. And of course, when I'm saying chambers, we're talking about gas chambers. When I say cargo, we're talking about human lives. Yeah. So the movie is about how these people compartmentalize themselves and, and become kind of complicit and create a language around the tasks at hand to make them 
you know, be able to perform it and kind of suppress their own humanity. And mm-hmm. the way the movie's shot kind of replicates that too. Because even like the, the the way the movie's shot, it's very cold clinical. There's a certain distance. It, it, it the, the camera kind of just like takes a position, stands there or moves along. There's a way that it moves where it feels like there's no one behind the camera. It's kind of soulless. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's very reflective of the whole mood that this movie is. We're going to talk a little bit more about that mood in a moment. Um, but Katerina, like Rad, you got to see this film when it premiered at Cannes in last May. Tell me about the expectations you had going into the screening and then how you felt coming out of it. Yeah, sure. So the zone of interest type was real in Cannes. I'm sure you heard the excitement in Rad's voice. Um, it yeah. was the favorite to win the palm for a lot of people. Um, most people said they left feeling full of dread. So naturally, I was... I was seated. I had high expectations, Um, but I left feeling disappointed. Um, The first time I saw it, I had seen a number of other films that day. So I was like, you know what? It's festival fatigue, baby. I gave Glazer the benefit of the doubt. Saw it a second time in Toronto, uh, fresh eyes, but I left um, with the same empty feeling. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't describe it as the same kind of empty feeling as if I had been hollowed out by the film's depiction of violence or the lack of the depiction of violence. Uh, It was more of the emptiness that comes with watching the kind of movie that it favors its style over its substance. Mm. Uh, And I left feeling like Glazer is just so in love with his own formal artistic ideas uh that he completely leaves the human aspect of the story like completely stranded i think cold and clinical are two words that i would use just in the opposite direction um i just think the content is the vehicle for glazer's form instead of the other way around which is really boring I uh, have to say, I appreciate a dissent. You know, I appreciate particular dissent when there is a lot of consensus around a movie. So this movie has this aggregate score of 89 on Metacritic. You know, so many publications have given it a top score of 100. Was there anything about this film that you did like? Or are you like, I'm actually a full dissenter. It's not it's not for me. Sure. No, there are a few things I can say positively about um, the zone of interest. I would say the Michael Levy score is very haunting. You heard it in that clip. Um, the cinematography also is stunningly beautiful, not denying those two formal elements were tackled really well. They're great. I just don't think they're enough to handle the whole film. Mm. Um, the concept that he's working with here just doesn't go much further than fascism was or is a great time for fascists. And they have beautiful, fancy lives that came at the expense of literal genocide Hmm. um and then one more nice thing i can say about the film would be i think there's a really interesting narrative thread with sandra huller's auschwitz barbie character um (laughs) but he's just not interested in people enough to explore what makes her tick past the surface level um i think her impulse to stay she literally fights to stay in auschwitz which is very fascinating uh, but Glazer just does not care at all. We don't get to see her perspective enough. And I think it's a waste of Sandra Cooler's talents. I, Can I'm, I just add? Dude, I'm sorry. interested in, I'm really just really interested in this because you guys are reacting to the same element, but yeah. you see it as a strength of the movie, but you see it as a devastating kind of weakness. But go ahead, Red. Well, no, I mean, I just think that, I mean, a lot of uh, like what Katarina is saying is, I mean, I absolutely agree with. I think there's, uh, I mean, I appreciate it uh, for, for different reasons. But I also, to what you said about it having like these high scores on Rotten Tomatoes and, yeah. and on Metacritic and stuff and this kind of unanimous praise for this. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting because coming out of Cannes, uh, I was in my backyard with uh, a colleague, Adam Naiman, and we were discussing like, hmm, the way everyone seems to love this is a little suspicious. Like, how is everyone falling in love with this movie that's supposed to 
make us uncomfortable. And mm. I feel like it should be more divisive if it's truly going to be making us feel uncomfortable. So I do hold room for the negative comments that Katarina makes that like, you know, like if it was truly uh, making us feel complicit and stuff that there would have been more divisive reactions like Katarina's. I Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fair to be suspicious of consensus in any movie in this particular <laughs> yeah. moment you know um i think that's a, i think that's a good take uh rad we should say like the holocaust film as a genre um has had a lot of big entries right? we have like shinzo's list life is beautiful the pianist and so forth these films do the thing where they go into the heart-wrenching stories right they tell us these heart-wrenching stories of struggle and survival they're generally from the perspective of the victims. The Zone of Interest doesn't do that. You never see the people on the other side of the wall. Sometimes you might hear them. What do you think is the value of keeping the camera fixed on just these Nazis living the good life? What do you think Jonathan Glazer was trying to do there? I mean, like, I think, you know, those movies you mentioned were about, you know, what happened versus this movie is about how it happens, right? It's mm. one of the few movies that are trying to get, try to actually understand how something like this happens. And it, but it does, like I said, it positions us alongside the perspective of that Nazi family. We are in this complicit position. And some of us may notice, you know, you were talking, both talking about the chilling landscape, right? Like, yeah. this, sorry, not landscape, the chilling soundscape. soundscape. The soundscape where we're hearing trains approaching, where we're hearing people screaming, where we're hearing dogs barking, where we're hearing gunshots. And at a certain point, we are in this position and we get accustomed to that soundscape. I don't know if about you, but I felt like I was able to eventually tune out the soundscape. And that is partly mm. how effective the film is, where it makes us so complicit that we could tune out this horrifying soundscape. Yeah, I, I find myself sort of going in and out of tuning it in, right? Like, I, mm. in the minute that I sort of tune back in, I go, wait, have these sounds been just around the whole time? And I've just yeah, kind yeah. of become desensitized because I'm trying to pay attention to these people's, like, the minutia of their lives. 100%. Oh, so the director, Jonathan Glazer, was on cue with Tom Power. I want you to hear him explaining why he deliberately chose to keep the horrors of Auschwitz off the screen in the movie. These images... Um we know from history, from school, from, from other films, mm -hmm. um, either the real archive um, imagery or, uh, or fictional recreations, you know, any number of, of, of films about the Holocaust. So there was no point in doing it again. And there was certainly, I had no, I had a, you know, I wouldn't have, I didn't want to reenact any of that. Personally? Just, you can't get close to what that place was um, through reenactment. It's just not possible. You can't get close to what that place was through reenactments. I'm, I'm interested in that idea, Katarina. In that clip, he's saying it's actually more effective to conjure the horrors through sound rather than images. Why did that approach ultimately not work for you? Uh, it's an audacious approach. I'm going to give him that. Um, but I do think cinema is a medium of both images and sounds. Mm. And his images are always stuck in one place. They don't develop. Um, I think they may as well have been stills while you have the score playing. I think you may as well have had this be an installation piece instead of a feature film. Mm. Um, if Rudolf Haas's wife, had, who I mentioned before, if she had been the main character... Um, then the all sound approach makes more sense, right? Because she never goes into the camp. She doesn't, she's not a, like a Nazi herself, but Rudolf Haas himself wasn't just a pencil pusher. He was a bloodthirsty anti-Semite and mm. a direct eyewitness to the horrors of the Holocaust. So if we're going through his perspective, that should be shown. And I think by leaving that out, Glazer's really reducing both Haas and the horrors. Um, I just don't think he had the stones to get close enough to the Nazi characters, let alone their victims. He mm. always has his arms, 
his arms length out from the Nazis. So I think it makes sense that he didn't want to get, he didn't want to wrestle too closely with the messy lives of uh, Jewish victims. I mean, he's just so disinterested in the whole subject um, besides making it as aesthetically pleasing as possible. He's just so indifferent to the whole thing. Uh, right when you look at this year's um, award season, you see the zone of interest is up against movies like Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, and you've noted some uncanny parallels between these three movies. Can you explain? Yeah, I mean, you look at these three movies, three, uh, I mean, three of the best, except I'm not as big on Oppenheimer as so many, but like they're all three of them about our complicity in genocide, right? And how easy mm. it is to become complicit in genocide. And Oppenheimer and Zone of Interest, like, you know, they're both like, they're, they're, their parallels are interesting in that they don't, both don't show you the victims. And they're both specifically about how people compartmentalize themselves to perform this kind of duty at hand, which is, you know, engineering tools for mass murder. And, you know, doing it without grappling with the human factor by pursuing these things as either a feat of, of science or a feat of, you know, the, the job, at, the, the, like, you know, the, just the task at, at, at your job, right? Um, and there's an interesting kind of visual overlap between Zone of Interest and Oppenheimer in which like the construction of the bomb and the construction of that gas chamber and stuff, it's all, you're seeing the designs where they are, it's literally compartments, you know? So it is kind of a visual echo of how these people are compartmentalizing themselves. But I think, you know, the overlap between the Zone of Interest and Killers of the Flower Moon, I think is way more interesting, especially because like it's how they diverge that I think is really telling. Um, and so, you know, here you have two movies that are both, you know, positioning you alongside the culprits. They're positioning you beside these unredeemable figures in history who are committing, uh, you know, who, who are committing genocide. Yeah, both are interested are, in, the, in the person who's complicit here. Yes. Exactly, right? Yeah. And both movies have very interesting ways of also breaking the narrative illusion and being like, hey, you you it's you and i in this position right yeah. and that's how they both drive their, uh, their their kind of points home where they differ though and this speaks very much to what katarina is saying is you know and this is also why i've generally you've heard me throughout the year saying i prefer killer of the flower moon for this reason is from the very beginning like and this is also the reason that people criticize the movie is that we're saddled to the dicaprio character ernest burkhardt who was orchestrating these murders against this indigenous community but we're meant you know we're meant to feel disgusted by how far he's willing to take things but we we also find redeemable aspects to him. There's certain endearing things to him. We're also seeing why Molly is endeared to him sometimes because he has a rascally charm. He has a human work. He yeah. has a way of drawing us in before we feel utterly betrayed and awful about what he does. And so speaking, and, and this is again, the thing that people criticize Killers of the Flower Moon for because it made the the, the bad guys seem really, you know, the, like some people said that they find makes them seem redeemable, right? Whereas I think it's not about it being redeemable. It draws us in so that we could feel like utterly complete. Whereas what Katarina says about Zone of Interest, I think is absolutely true because there is a cold and alienating distance to these characters. I think Jonathan Glazer doesn't want to find any redeemable aspects to those characters, doesn't want to make them likable at all. And so the move that Zone of Interest in that way is more clean and distance and alienating because it keeps that that kind of respectful distance from its characters. And in that way, I didn't feel as implicated by that movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, both those movies are sort of asking you to, 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 to tussle with your own complicity with your own, mm -hmm. you know, front row seat um, view to atrocities. Katarina, in terms of those movies, which one was the most effective for you? How do you think Zone of Interest measures up to those other movies? So I agree here. I definitely, Killers is the best one. In my opinion, um, with Oppenheimer, there was a lot of debate over the summer about whether or not Nolan should have included the victims of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in right. the film. I remember that being a big conversation. And I'm just not sure why we haven't heard 
that conversation at all in terms of the zone of interest, whether you're on either side of that debate. Um, with Killers, uh, which is my favorite, um, you don't have that movie without all three sides of that story. You don't have it without the indifference of evil, the suffering of the victims, and Martin Scorsese's own acute awareness of how he chose to tell the story, which you see with that ending. And we do follow William Hale and Ernest Burkhardt's bloodthirsty murdering plots, um, which they have to have an, um, an amount of indifference in order to work. But you just do not have killers without Molly Burkhardt. Mm -hmm. You don't have killers without her pain as she watches her family die around her. You don't have killers without Molly getting sick, without Lily Gladstone's performance. Um, it's difficult to watch. It's difficult to grapple with. Yeah. Jonathan, but uh, we have to witness her physical suffering in that room as she's being poisoned by someone who she thought she could trust. Right. Um, I don't think showing her pain on screen is somehow glamorizing it. Um, I think if he had, if Scorsese had chosen to cut Molly's perspective out of the film, you would have a lot of people up in arms, and rightfully so. Um, I think Scorsese made a movie about people, and Glazer made a movie about ideas, and I think Nolan is kind of in the middle of that. Katarina, I don't know if Jonathan Glazer is listening, but I hope you're listening, Jonathan Glazer, because apparently we got notes. Listen, um, this is this is the sort of tough thing to ask here, but you both saw this movie at Cannes, and then you had the chance to revisit it later in the year. Uh, Rad, I'm wondering if the context has changed, if this movie hits differently after the attack in Israel on October 7th, and then the war in Gaza that started um, after that and has been going on until now. I don't know that it hits differently because the thing is the 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 violence that's happening over there that's sort of an ongoing violence, right? So mm. even when I saw this at Cannes, even when I saw like you know when I saw these images of of a wall and this violence that's happening on the other side of the wall that people are comfortably ignoring, like that was already kind of top of mind for me. Uh, so it's I was already basically connecting it to the war in Gaza or like and everything that came before that, right? Mm. So like and of course like you know the recent flare up, the bombardment, like that certainly has made it now easier for me to point to that in conversations about this movie what and point to and, and well specifically like like we because it's happening right now this is like this kind of glaring example of look at how people like look the, i mean this is a glaring example of what jonathan glazer is making a point of like look at how everyone creates a certain language how they compartmentalize themselves and use very precise language to make it okay for a genocide to happen right so whether that language mm. is calling it a final solution or a defense or a war against terror, like this is how we make it okay and how we sleep better at night while millions of lives are being lost or like, you know, hundreds, thousands, thousands, whatnot. Uh, I think it's useful to point out in this context that uh, it, we're talking about this just after South Africa's genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice. Canada has rejected this claim. A whole bunch of other countries have rejected that claim. And it could be years before we get a ruling from the International Court of Justice on whether what Israel is carrying out is, in fact, a genocide. Katerina, what was it like for you watching this film, you know, before this particular moment and then after? Yeah, um, I don't think it hit different for me. Either The Zone of Interest isn't the first movie that came to mind. It didn't come to my mind at all, I guess, when... Uh, it, it wasn't a useful contest. Going down in the Middle East. No, not really. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to call the film irresponsible. I think it's pretty self-satisfied. I think I've made that clear mm -hmm. already. Maybe he's made the film of our time by obsessing over his own formal aesthetics mm -hmm. while vaguely kind of gesturing at victims that he's 
trying to represent maybe i personally have been more focused on other films that are more interested in the human experience in the face of mass violence and death Mm. um so one example is um the settlers which i know is out in new york right now um it's a chilean film by felipe galvez it's a really unflinchingly bleak look into the decades-long genocide that was in South America in the early uh, 1900s. Um, it's beautifully shot. There's also a haunting score. Um, but he is not afraid to shy away from the perpetrators or from the victims' experiences. Mm. Uh, it's constantly changing. It's constantly developing into a new film. Yeah, that movie is the movie that filled me with dread and had me thinking about what's going on in the movies right now. Katarina, Rad, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you guys putting this movie in context both right now, but also in terms of the awards attention that it's getting and how we should maybe relate to it or feel about it. Thank you again for your time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Anytime. Of course. Thank you. Rad Savanpillay is a film critic with CBC and CTV here in Toronto. And Katarina Dekalovich writes about film for Paste. She's based in Brooklyn. Zone of Interest is currently in limited release, but it opens in more theaters across Canada this Friday. I'm Christina Cotarucci, and this season on Slow Burn. It's called Proposition 6. The Briggs Initiative. John Briggs is going to fire every gay and lesbian schoolteacher in California. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We can't let this happen in California. And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out now, wherever you listen. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud, and you're listening to Commotion. Okay, we are going to switch gears here a bit, and I think the best place to start is this. Terry wants to go! Here we go. Terry Ryan! He's going to drop him! On his 47th birthday, a heavy right hand from Ryan! What a battle! Uh, He may have been knocked down, but what an effort from Terry Ryan! Just listen to this place! You absolutely love to see that. The scene on Sunday night on a sold-out hockey game in St. John's, Newfoundland. Terry Ryan, one of the players on the, on the ice, gets an ovation for doing exactly what his character does in the hit TV show Shorzy. He's dropping the gloves. He's sticking up for a friend on the ice. The story of how Terry, the actor, came to be playing for the Growlers on his 47th birthday, more than 20 years since he last played pro hockey, Absolutely wild story. Jer- Terry joins me right now. Terry, what's going on, man? Well, it's still very emotional. All positive vibes, though, but it's uh, it's a lot to absorb. It, it might be the most unique story of my my life, let alone hockey career. Oh man, that sounds like a lovely place to to lo- lovely place to start. Listen. Why don't we set the scene here? There was a bad flu going around the Growlers, and the Growlers needed players, and they called you. Take me back to that moment in the pub when your phone rang on Saturday night, and then you picked up. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd been, you know, I'd been celebrating my birthday. I was meeting my buddies at, at the Growlers game. I'm a big fan. I love the Growlers. Yeah. And we, we get to be represented here. We, we, we get to represent the Toronto Maple Leafs organization. That that jersey, that Newfoundland jersey, is, is just—I really take pride in it as a mm-hmm. fan. Yeah, and I got friends on the team, real, real close friends. So you know, I go to watch whenever I can. Yeah. So, but it was my birthday, and you know, it was Saturday. My birthday was at the stroke of midnight, whatever. So we figured we'd go out Saturday instead of Sunday, and a few of my buddies took me out. 
real good friends, you know, lifetime friends. And we went down and we went to the game. We ate green sleeves and then blew on water. And about five after 12, five minutes into my 47th birthday, I got a call <laughs> okay. from Zach O'Brien. And Zach plays on the Growlers. Um, great hockey player, one of Newfoundland's best ever and a good friend of mine. And we've played ball hockey in the summers together and everything. We, we've competed. He's a good friend. Yeah. Um, so he phoned, but I really thought it was a joke. I re- really, really did. I hung up on him. And then, uh, yeah, about five minutes later, Adam Party phoned, ex-NHLer who played a year for the Growlers when they won the championship in their inaugural season. Another a- another real, real good friend and a guy I respect for a lot of reasons. So when, when he phoned and made a point of it, I, I knew it was real. So I went out and hailed a cab right away. I went home. I tried to get as much water in me as I could and, and, and eat. But... <laughs> it, I, and I, you know, I wanted to get some sleep, but I really, it was really broken. I don't know if I got three hours combined. It was just a oh, lot wow. of emotions. I couldn't close my eyes and concentrate because I couldn't believe what was going to happen the next day. So that's basically how I found out. Now, very unique situation. Um, they did have a flu going around. Yeah. The game was an afternoon game. The game was a nighttime game. I don't know, but I'm thinking the Toronto Maple Leafs are the affiliate. They right. probably fly someone here. I, I really don't know. And the other thing, I'm sure that Matt Cook, who's the head coach, and, and I'm a fan of, you know, I watched him play for a long time. He played with a lot of tenacity. I, I, I liked his uh, passion for the game that, that I feel we have that in common. Yeah. But when I got there, I, I just, I figured, you know, it's hard. It, it, it would be hard for him not to think this is some sort of publicity stunt. But the guys on the team, uh, Todd Skirving, James Melindy, Adam Daw, Jordan Escott, and Zach O'Brien. Yeah, I skate with those guys in the summer, and I like I said, I, I I run with them, I play ball hockey, so so they knew at least that I was in shape. They knew I had the cardio. There was really nothing else to pick from because senior hockey is big here, and the deadline is January tenth. Right. So anybody that played senior hockey, if they played on Sunday, they wouldn't be able to go back. And we send a good team to the Allen Cup every year. We lost in the final last year. That's the Canadian Championship. Generally, so guys who come back from junior or pro or wherever, they tend to play senior and they're signed right. on cards and they take it, like I said, very seriously. So the, all that pool, which is six teams, is eliminated. But So now, what local can we call because we don't have any time to get here? Well, Terry Ryan is available, I'll tell you. That's... Well, that's what happened. And if nothing else, I skate five times a week. So the boys... So you're a, little, you're a little bit ready to sort of take this on. But I got to say, even still, with skating a few times a week... Uh, you 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 heard that play by play. You got into a bit of a tilt, right? You went down pretty hard. Do you regret it at all in any kind of way? Regret what? But playing, regret going to the game and then getting hit and going down pretty hard. Oh God, no! That, that, <laughs> yeah, you hit me. I, I I I think I got him a few good ones at the beginning. It's not not about hurting somebody in a no. fight. Fight hockey fights, and I didn't plan on fighting. No, he hit my good friend in the corner. I'm a teammate. They, these guys hired me to do a job. Right. Yeah. Like that, that, that's what gets lost here. This wasn't a publicity stunt. I tried to explain that to people. Yeah. You know, Hockey Night in Canada announced it. I think people expected like Gordie Howe to come out and get like one shift just for a technicality <laughs> and be waving at the crowd. But no, when I got there, I mean, these are, first of all, these are my friends I've competed with. We've gone to yeah. national world championships together at ball hockey. Yeah. So like they knew that part. And I just tried to explain to the team, you know, I, I'm, I'm guys, we're, we're rewinding the clock here. This isn't a novelty. Now, had I gotten no shifts, it would have been fine. But he played me regularly. He started me the game, and then regularly in the third period, I looked down, and James Melindy got hit pretty hard in the corner. But, you know, because someone landed on top of me, I don't mind that. I mean, it was a hockey fight. It was, hockeyfights.com, I think, gave it a draw. I got a pretty good at the beginning. <laughs> now, I'm glad 
Yeah. I'm glad it didn't be one side or the other. Yeah. You know, I'm not because I don't like everything had to work out right. But, you know, I, I did start the fight. I, I would argue being a hockey player that, you know, I, I wouldn't have looked for it had he not really hit my buddy real hard, knocked sure. his helmet off. But, you know, so. I I, I, I got to ask you, Terry, I, I got like maybe like 30 seconds left here. Right. Uh, this sounds so much like a Shorzy episode. And the character that you play on that show, Hitch, is a fighter with a big heart. How much of you, how much of Terry's in is, is in Hitch? I guess you'll have to ask Jared Kiso, but as it unfolds, quite a bit. I mean, there, there, there is a disconnect, and I like that I have to really put on the accent because it, to me, like, and I, I play defense in the show, and I'm a forward in real life. Yeah. So there are a few things that, yeah, that, that separate me from Ted, and, and that's fine by me because I need that in my head. I need some, you know, I'm still acting. I'm still trying to do a job. Of course. And I can't get lost in TR. I, I've got to be Ted Hitchcock. Sometimes that gets hard because the line is very blurry. But yeah, th- there's certainly a lot of Ted Hitchcock in myself for sure. Well, Terry, we got to leave it there, but thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you for being here. Thanks for, co- or thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was an honor. Of course. Terry Ryan plays Hitch and Shorzy on Crave. And on Sunday, on his 47th birthday, he was called up to play for the St. John's Growlers. He's in Newfoundland, Labrador's beautiful capital city this morning. And that is it for the podcast today. Remember, you can listen to the show anytime you like, wherever you get your podcast. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm going to be here tomorrow. If you're going to be here, I'd love to see you then. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.